Chapter the Thirtieth, Book the Second of Little Dorrit. Read for LibriVox.org by Ellis Christoph. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book the Second, Chapter the Thirtieth. Closing in. Part Two. Rigo pushed his chair a little back, pushed his legs out straight before him, and sat with his arms folded over against her. You do not know what it is she went on addressing him, to be brought up strictly and straightly. I was so brought up. Mine was no light youth of sinful gaiety and pleasure. Mine were days of wholesome repression, punishment and fear. The corruption of our hearts, the evil of our ways, the curse that is upon us, the terrors that surround us, these were the themes of my childhood. They formed my character and filled me with an abhorrence of evil-doers. When old Mr. Gilbert Clennam proposed his orphan nephew to my father for my husband, my father impressed upon me that his bringing up had been, like mine, one of severe restraint. He told me that besides the discipline his spirit had undergone, he had lived in a starved house, where rioting and gaiety were unknown, and where every day was a day of toil and trial like the last. He told me that he had been a man in years long before his uncle had acknowledged him as one, and that from his school days to that hour, his uncle's roof had been a sanctuary to him from the contagion of the irreligious and dissolute. When within a twelvemonth of our marriage I found my husband, at that time when my father spoke of him, to have sinned against the Lord and outraged me by holding a guilty creature in my place, was I to doubt that it had been appointed to me to make the discovery, and that it was appointed to me to lay the hand of punishment upon that creature of perdition? Was I to dismiss in a moment not my own wrongs, what was I, but all the rejection of sin, and all the war against it, in which I had been bred? She laid her wrathful hand upon the watch on the table. No, do not forget. The initials of those words are within here now, and were within here then. I was appointed to find the old letter that referred to them, and that told me what they meant, and whose work they were, and why they were worked, lying with this watch in his secret drawer but for that appointment there would have been no discovery. Do not forget. It spoke to me like a voice from an angry cloud. Do not forget the deadly sin. Do not forget the appointed discovery. Do not forget the appointed suffering. I did not forget. Was it my own wrong I remembered? Mine. I was but a servant and a minister. What power could I have over them, but that they were bound in the bonds of their sin? and delivered to me. More than forty years had passed over the grey head of this determined woman, since the time she recalled. More than forty years of strife and struggle with the whisper, that, by whatever name she called her vindictive pride and rage, nothing through all eternity could change their nature. Yet, gone those more than forty years, and come this nemesis, now looking her in the face, she still abided by her old impiety, still reversed the order of creation, and breathed her own breath into a clay image of her Creator. Verily, verily, travellers have seen many monstrous idols in many countries, but no human eyes have ever seen more daring, gross, and shocking images of the divine nature than we creatures of the dust make in our own likenesses, of our own bad passions. When I forced him to give her up to me, by her name and place of abode, 
she went on in her torrent of indignation and defence. When I accused her, and she fell hiding her face at my feet, was it my injury that I asserted? Were they my reproaches that I poured upon her? Those who were appointed of old to go to wicked kings and accuse them, were they not ministers and servants? And had not I, unworthy and far removed from them, sinned to denounce, when she pleaded to me her youth, and his wretched and hard life, that was her phrase for the virtuous training he had belied. And the desecrated ceremony of marriage there had secretly been between them, and the terrors of want and shame that had overwhelmed them both when I was first appointed to be the instrument of their punishment, and the love, for she said the word to me down at my feet, in which she had abandoned him and left him to me. Was it my enemy that became my footstool? Were they the words of my wrath that made her shrink and quiver? Not unto me the strength be ascribed, not unto me the ringing of the expiation. Many years had come and gone since she had had the free use even of her fingers, but it was noticeable that she had already more than once struck her clenched hand vigorously upon the table, and that when she said these words she raised her whole arm in the air as though it had been a common action with her. And what was the repentance that was extorted from the hardness of her heart and the blackness of her depravity? I, vindictive and implacable? It may be so, to such as you, who know no righteousness and no appointment except Satan's. Laugh, but I will be known as I know myself, and as Flintwinch knows me, though it is only to you and this half-witted woman. Add to yourself, madame, said Rigaud, I have my little suspicions that madame is rather solicitous to be justified to herself. It is false. It is not so. I have no need to be, she said with great energy and anger. Truly? retorted Rigo. Ha! I ask, what was the penitence in works that was demanded of her? You have a child. I have none. You love that child. Give him to me. He shall believe himself to be my son, and he shall be believed by every one to be my son. To save you from exposure, his father shall swear never to see or communicate with you more, equally to save him from being stripped by his uncle, and to save your child from being a beggar, you shall swear never to see or communicate with either of them more. That done, and your present means derived from my husband renounced, I charge myself with your support. You may, with your place of retreat unknown, then leave if you please." uncontradicted by me, the lie that when you passed out of all knowledge but mine, you merited a good name. That was all. She had to sacrifice her sinful and shameful affections no more. She was then free to bear her load of guilt in secret, and to break her heart in secret. And through such present misery, light enough for her, I think, to purchase her redemption from endless misery, if she could. If in this I punished her here, did I not open to her a way hereafter? If she knew herself to be surrounded by insatiable vengeance and unquenchable fires, were they mine? If I threatened her, then and afterwards, with the terrors that encompassed her, did I hold them in my right hand? She turned the watch upon the table, and opened it, and with an unsoftening face looked at the worked letters within. They did not forget. It is appointed against such offences that the offenders shall not be able to forget. If the presence of Arthur was a daily reproach to his father, and if the absence of Arthur was a daily agony to his mother, 
that was the just dispensation of Jehovah. As well might it be charged upon me that the stings of an unawakened conscience drove her mad, and that it was the will of the disposer of all things that she should live so many years. I devoted myself to reclaim the otherwise predestined and lost boy, to give him the reputation of an honest origin, to bring him up in fear and trembling, and in a life of practical contrition for the sins that were heavy on his head before his entrance into this condemned world. Was that a cruelty? Was I, too, not visited with consequences of the original offence, in which I had no complicity? Arthur's father and I lived no further apart, with half the globe between us, than when we were together in this house. He died, and sent this watch back to me, with its do not forget. I do not forget, though I do not read it as he did. I read in it that I was appointed to do these things. I have so read these three letters since I have had them lying on this table, and I did so read them with equal distinctness when they were thousands of miles away. As she took the watch-case in her hand, with that new freedom in the use of her hand, of which she showed no consciousness whatever, bending her eyes upon it, as if she were defying it to move her, Rigaud cried with a loud and contemptuous snapping of his fingers. Come, madame, time runs out. Come, lady of piety, it must be. You can tell nothing I don't know. Come to the money stolen, or I will. Death of my soul, I have had enough of your other jargon. Come straight to the stolen money. Wretch that you are, she answered, and now her hands clasped her head. Through what fatal error of Flintwinch's, through what incompleteness on his part, who was the only other person helping in these things and trusted with them, through whose and what bringing together of the ashes of a burnt paper you have become possessed of that codicil, I know no more than how you acquired the rest of your power here. And yet, interrupted Rigo, it is my odd fortune to have by me, in a convenient place that I know of, that same short little addition to the will of Monsieur Gilbert Clennam, written by a lady and witnessed by the same lady and our old intriguer. Ah, bah, old intriguer, crooked little puppet. Madame, let us go on. Time presses. You or I to finish. I, she answered with increased determination, if it were possible. I, because I will not endure to be shown myself, and have myself shown to any one, with your horrible distortion upon me. You, with your practices of infamous foreign prisons and galleys, would make it the money that impelled me. It was not the money. Bah, bah, bah! I repudiate for the moment my politeness and say, lies, lies, lies. You know you suppressed the deed and kept the money. Not for the money's sake, wretch! She made a struggle, as if she were starting up, even as if, in her vehemence, she had almost risen on her disabled feet. If Gilbert Clennam, reduced to imbecility at the point of death, and labouring under the delusion of some imaginary relenting towards a girl, of whom he had heard that his nephew had once had a fancy for her, which he had crushed out of him, and that she afterwards drooped away into melancholy and withdrawal from all who knew her, if in that state of weakness he dictated to me, whose life she had darkened with her sin, and who had been appointed to know her wickedness from her own hand and her own lips, a bequest meant as a recompense to her for supposed unmerited suffering, 
was there no difference between my spurning that injustice and coveting mere money, a thing which you and your comrades in the prisons may steal from anyone? Time presses, madame. Take care. If this house was blazing from the roof to the ground, she returned, I would stay in it to justify myself against my righteous motives being classed with those of stabbers and thieves. Rigaud snapped his fingers tauntingly in her face. One thousand guineas to the little beauty you slowly hunted to death, one thousand guineas to the youngest daughter her patron might have at fifty, or if he had none, brother's youngest daughter, on her coming of age. As the remembrance of his disinterestedness may like best, of his protection of a friendless young orphan girl. Two thousand guineas. What? You will never come to the money? That patron, she was vehemently proceeding when he checked her. Names, call him Mr. Frederick Dorrit. No more evasions. That Frederick Dorrit was the beginning of it all. If he had not been a player of music, and had not kept, in those days of his youth and prosperity, an idle house where singers and players and such-like children of evil turned their backs on the light and their faces to the darkness, she might have remained in her lowly station, and might not have been raised out of it to be cast down. But no, Satan entered into that Frederick Dorrit, and counselled him that he was a man of innocent and laudable tastes who did kind actions, and that here was a poor girl with a voice for singing music with. Then he is to have her taught. Then Arthur's father, who has all along been secretly pining in the ways of virtuous raggedness for those accursed snares which are called the arts, becomes acquainted with her. And so, a graceless orphan, training to be a singing girl, carries it, by that Frederick Dorrit's agency against me, and I am humbled and deceived. Not I, that is to say— she added quickly, as colour flashed into her face. A greater than I. What am I? Jeremiah Flintwinch, who had been gradually screwing himself towards her, and who was now very near her elbow without her knowing it, made a specially wry face of objection when she said these words, and moreover twitched his gaiters, as if such pretensions were equivalent to little barbs in his legs. Lastly, she continued, for I am at the end of these things, and I will say no more of them, and you shall say no more of them, and all that remains will be to determine whether the knowledge of them can be kept among us who are here present. Lastly, when I suppressed that paper with the knowledge of Arthur's father. But not with his consent, you know, said Mr. Flintwinch. Who said with his consent? She started to find Jeremiah so near her, and drew back her head, looking at him with some rising distrust. You were often enough between us, when he would have had me produce it and I would not, to have contradicted me if I had said, with his consent, I say, when I suppressed that paper, I made no effort to destroy it, but kept it by me, here in this house, many years. The rest of the Gilbert property being left to Arthur's father, I could at any time, without unsettling more than the two sums, have made a pretense of finding it. But besides that I must have supported such pretense by direct falsehood, a great responsibility, I have seen no new reason in all the time I have been tried here to bring it to light. It was a rewarding of sin, the wrong result of a delusion. I did what I was appointed to do, and I have undergone, 
within these four walls what I was appointed to undergo. When the paper was at last destroyed, as I thought, in my presence, she had long been dead, and her patron, Frederick Dorrit, had long been deservedly ruined and imbecile. He had no daughter. I had found the niece before then. And what I did for her was better for her far than the money of which she would have had no good. She added, after a moment, as though she addressed the watch. She herself was innocent, and I might not have forgotten to relinquish it to her at my death, and sat looking at it. "'Shall I recall something to you, worthy madame?' said Rigaud. "'The little paper was in this house on the night when our friend the prisoner, jail comrade of my soul, came home from foreign countries. Shall I recall yet something more to you?' The little singing bird that never was fledged was long kept in a cage by a guardian of your appointing, well enough known to our old intriguer here. Shall we coax our old intriguer to tell us when he saw him last? I'll tell you, cried Afery, unstopping her mouth. I dreamed it. First of all my dreams, Jeremiah, if you come and nigh me now, I'll scream to be heard at St. Paul's. The person as this man has spoken of was Jeremiah's own twin brother, and he was here in the dead of the night, on the night when Arthur come home, and Jeremiah with his own hands gave him this paper, along with I don't know what more, and he took it away in an iron box. Help! Murder! Save me from Jeremiah! Mr. Flintwinch had made a run at her, but Rigor had caught him in his arms midway. After a moment's wrestle with him, Flintwinch gave up and put his hands in his pockets. What? cried Rigaud, rallying him as he poked and jerked him back with his elbows. Assault a lady with such a genius for dreaming? Ha ha ha! Why, she'll be a fortune to you as an exhibition. All that she dreams comes true. Ha ha ha! You're so like him, little Flintwinch. So like him, as I knew him. When I first spoke English for him to the host, in the cabaret of the three billiard tables, in the little street of the high roofs, by the wharf at Antwerp, ah, but he was a brave boy to drink, ah, but he was a brave boy to smoke, ah, but he lived in a sweet bachelor apartment, furnished on the fifth floor, above the wooden charcoal merchants, and the dressmakers, and the chairmakers, and the maker of tubs, where I knew him too, and where with his cognac and tobacco, he had twelve sleeps a day in one fit, until he had a fit too much and ascended to the skies. Ha ha ha, what does it matter how I took possession of the papers in his iron box? Perhaps he confided it to my hands for you. Perhaps it was locked and my curiosity was piqued. Perhaps I suppressed it. Ha ha ha, what does it matter? So that I have it safe. We are not particular here, eh, Flintwinch? We are not particular here. Is it not so, madame? Retiring before him, with vicious counter-jerks of his own elbows, Mr. Flintwinch had got back into his corner, where he now stood with his hands in his pockets, taking breath, and returning Mrs. Clennam's stare. Ha ha ha! But what's this? cried Rigaud. It appears as if you don't know one the other. Permit me, Madame Clennam, who suppresses, to present Monsieur Flintwinch, who intrigues. Mr. Flintwinch, pocketing one of his hands to scrape his jaw, advanced a step or so in that attitude, still returning Mrs. Clennam's look, and thus addressed her. Now, 
I know what you mean by opening your eyes so wide at me, but you needn't take the trouble because I don't care for it. I've been telling you for how many years that you're one of the most opinionated and obstinate of women. That's what you are. You call yourself humble and sinful, but you're the most bumptious of your sex. That's what you are. I have told you, over and over again when we have had a tiff, that you wanted to make everything go down before you, but I wouldn't be swallowed up alive. Why didn't you destroy the paper when you first laid hands upon it? I advised you to, but no, it's not your way to take advice. You must keep it forsooth. Perhaps you may carry it out at some other time, forsooth. As if I didn't know better than that, I think I see your pride carrying it out with a chance of being suspected of having kept it by you. But that's the way you cheat yourself. Just as you cheat yourself into making out that you didn't do all this business because you were a rigorous woman, all slight and spite and power and unforgiveness, but because you were a servant and a minister and were appointed to do it. Who are you that you should be appointed to do it? That may be your religion, but it's my gammon. And to tell you all the truth while I am about it, said Mr. Flintwinch crossing his arms and becoming the express image of irascible doggedness, I have been rasped, rasped these forty years, by your taking such high ground even with me, who knows better, the effects of it being coolly to put me on low ground. I admire you very much. You are a woman of strong head and great talent, but the strongest head and the greatest talent can't rasp a man for forty years without making him sore. So I don't care for your present eyes. Now I am coming to the paper and mark what I say. You put it away somewhere, and you kept your own counsel where. You're an active woman at that time, and if you want to get that paper, you can get it. But mark... There comes a time when you are struck into what you are now, and then if you want to get that paper, you can't get it. So it lies long years in its hiding place. At last, when we were expecting Arthur home every day, and when any day may bring him home, and it's impossible to say what rummaging he may make about the house, I recommend you five thousand times, if you can't get at it, to let me get at it, that it may be put in the fire. But no, no one but you knows where it is, and that's power. And call yourself whatever humble names you will, I call you a female Lucifer in appetite for power. On a Sunday night Arthur comes home. He has not been in this room ten minutes when he speaks of his father's watch. You know very well that the do not forget at the time when his father sent that watch to you could only mean the rest of the story being then all dead and over. Do not forget the suppression. Make restitution. Arthur's ways have frightened you a bit, and the paper shall be burnt after all. So, before that jumping jade and Jezebel, Mr. Flintwinch grinned at his wife, has got you into bed, you at last tell me where you have put the paper, among the old ledgers in the cellars, where Arthur himself went prowling the very next morning. But it's not to be burnt on a Sunday night. No, you are strict, you are. We must wait over twelve o'clock and get into Monday. Now all this is a swallowing of me up alive that rasps me. So, feeling a little out of temper, and not being as strict as yourself, I take a look at the document before twelve o'clock to refresh my memory as to its appearance, fold up one of the many yellow old papers in the cellars like it, and afterwards, 
when we have got into Monday morning, and I have, by the light of your lamp, to walk from you lying on that bed to this grate, make a little exchange like the conjurer, and burn accordingly. My brother Ephraim, the lunatic keeper, I wish he had had himself to keep in a straight waistcoat, had had many jobs since the close of the long job he got from you, but had not done well. His wife died, not that that was much. Mine might have died instead and welcome. He speculated unsuccessfully in lunatics. He got into difficulty about over-roasting a patient to bring him to reason, and he got into debt. He was going out of the way, on what he had been able to scrape up, and a trifle from me. He was here that early Monday morning waiting for the tide. In short, he was going to Antwerp where, I am afraid you'll be shocked at my saying, and be damned to him, he made the acquaintance of this gentleman. He had come a long way, and I thought then was only sleepy, but I suppose now was drunk, when Arthur's mother had been under the care of him and his wife. She had been always writing, incessantly writing mostly letters of confession to you, and prayers for forgiveness. My brother had handed, from time to time, lots of these sheets to me. I thought I might as well keep them to myself, as have them swallowed up alive too. So I kept them in a box, looking over them when I felt in the humour, convinced that it was advisable to get the paper out of the place, with Arthur coming about it. I put it in this same box, and I locked the hole up with two locks, and I trusted it to my brother to take away and keep, till I should write about it. I did write about it, and never got an answer. I didn't know what to make of it, till this gentleman favoured us with his first visit. Of course, I began to suspect how it was then, and I don't want his word for it now to understand how he gets his knowledge from my papers, and your paper, and my brother's cognac, and tobacco talk. I wish he'd had to gag himself. Now, I have only one thing more to say, you hammer-headed woman, and that is, that I haven't altogether made up my mind whether I might, or might not, have ever given you any trouble about the codicil. I think not, and that I should have been quite satisfied with knowing I had got the better of you, and that I held the power over you. In the present state of circumstances, I have no more explanation to give you till this time to-morrow night. So you may as well, said Mr. Flintwinch, terminating his oration with a screw, Keep your eyes open at somebody else, for it's no use keeping em open at me. She slowly withdrew them when he had ceased, and dropped her forehead on her hand. Her other hand pressed hard upon the table, and again the curious stir was observable in her, as if she were going to rise. This box can never bring elsewhere the price it will bring here. This knowledge can never be of the same profit to you, sold to any other person as sold to me but I have not the present means of raising the sum you have demanded. I have not prospered. What will you take now, and what at another time, and how am I to be assured of your silence? My angel, said Rigo, I have said what I will take, and time presses. Before coming here, I placed copies of the most important of these papers in another hand, put off the time till the Marshal Seagate shall be shut for the night, and it will be too late to treat. The prisoner will have read them. She put her two hands to her head again, uttered a loud exclamation, and started to her feet. She staggered for a moment, as if she would have fallen, then stood firm.
Say what you mean. Say what you mean, man. Before her ghostly figure, so long unused to its erect attitude, and so stiffened in it, Rigor fell back and dropped his voice. It was to all the three almost as if a dead woman had risen. Miss Dorrit, answered Rigo, the little niece of Monsieur Frederick, whom I have known across the water, is attached to the prisoner. Miss Dorrit, little niece of Monsieur Frederick, watches at this moment over the prisoner, who is ill. For her, I with my own hands left a packet at the prison on my way here, with a letter of instruction, for his sake. She will do anything for his sake, to keep it without breaking the seal, in case of its being reclaimed before the hour of shutting up to-night, if it should not be reclaimed before the ringing of the prison bell, to give it to him, and it encloses a second copy for herself, which he must give to her. What? I don't trust myself among you, now we have got so far, without giving my secret a second life, and as to its not bringing me elsewhere the price it will bring here, say then, madame, have you limited and settled the price the little niece will give, for his sake, to hush it up? Once more I say, time presses. The packet not reclaimed before the ringing of the bell to-night you cannot buy. I sell then to the little girl. Once more the stir and struggle in her, and she ran to a closet, tore the door open, took down a hood or shawl, and wrapped it over her head. Affery, who had watched her in terror, darted to her in the middle of the room, caught hold of her dress, and went on her knees to her. Don't, don't, don't! What are you doing? Where are you going? You're a fearful woman, but I don't bear you no ill will. I can do poor Arthur no good now that I see. And you needn't be afraid of me. I'll keep your secret. Don't go out. You'll fall dead in the street. Only promise me that, if it's the poor thing that's kept here secretly, you'll let me take charge of her and be her nurse. Only promise me that, and never be afraid of me. Mrs. Clennam stood still for an instant, at the height of her rapid haste, saying in stern amazement, Kept here? She has been dead a score of years or more. Ask Flintwinch, ask him. They can both tell you that she died when Arthur went abroad. So much the worse, said Affery with a shiver. For she haunts the house then. Who else rustles about it, making signals by dropping dust so softly? Where else comes and goes, and marks the walls with long crooked touches when we are all abed? Who else holds the door sometimes? But don't go out, don't go out, mistress, you'll die in the street. Her mistress only disengaged her dress from the beseeching hands, said to Rigaud, Wait here till I come back, and ran out of the room. They saw her, from the window, run wildly through the courtyard, and out at the gateway. For a few moments they stood motionless. Affery was the first to move, and she, wringing her hands, pursued her mistress. Next, Jeremiah Flintwinch, slowly backing to the door, with one hand in a pocket, and the other rubbing his chin, twisted himself out in his reticent way, speechlessly. Rigo, left alone, composed himself upon the window-seat of the open window, in the old Marseille jail attitude. He laid his cigarettes and firebox ready to his hand, and fell to smoking. Woof! Almost as dull as the infernal old jail, warmer but almost as dismal. Wait till she comes back. Yes, certainly. 
but where is she gone, and how long will she be gone? No matter, Rigolanier Blandois, my amiable subject, you will get your money, you will enrich yourself, you have lived a gentleman, you will die a gentleman. You triumph, my little boy, but it is your character to triumph. Oof! In the hour of his triumph, his moustache went up and his nose came down, as he ogled a great beam over his head with particular satisfaction. End of part two of chapter the thirtieth, book the second of Little Dorrit. This recording is in the public domain.